I will keep fighting to bring peace to humans and robots. This is the Guileless Gamer Podcast. I'm Stefan, and this is part four of Mega Buster, our very, very long interrogation of the Mega Man franchise. This time around, Mega Man, released in 1990 for the Microsoft Disk Operating System. One thing we have more or less left behind as we've moved through the decades is the concept of the video game port. Now, I want to be specific. I'm not saying that we don't see games brought from one console to another console after a period of time. That's still very common. What is less common is the port as we knew it in the 1980s and 1990s. A ground-up rebuild of a specific game that reflects the strengths and weaknesses of its target console or computer. Sometimes this practice resulted in a radically different game, one that bore a little more than a superficial resemblance to its source material. Occasionally, this worked out very well. Rygar for the arcade was a uh, pretty joyless slog, but on the Nintendo Entertainment System, it became a wonderful exploratory adventure that differed structurally from its forerunner in meaningful ways. But usually the best we could hope for was a port that didn't add much, but didn't lose too much either. Think of Strider for the Sega Genesis, or Street Fighter II for the Super Nintendo. The success or failure of a port depended on many factors, including the strength of the source material, the characteristics of the target platform, and the skill of the team or individual in charge of the actual production. Without praising or damning one format over another, we have to acknowledge that the home consoles of the late 1980s and the personal computers of the late 1980s differed dramatically from one another in both capabilities and intended use. While the Nintendo Entertainment System ruled the living room in North America and Japan, and Sega was beginning to build momentum with its Mega Drive, Microsoft's Disk Operating System, or DOS, was a well-established American standard for personal computer owners. As a standalone operating system, DOS was a significant gaming platform, hosting many meaningful and important releases that substantively affected the course of the medium. SimCity, Civilization, Wolfenstein 3D, Doom, The Secret of Monkey Island, and countless other classics laid the foundation of PC gaming as it exists today. A comprehensive history of DOS is beyond the purview of this podcast, but what is relevant is that an operating system targeting an impossibly large range of systems was simply going to be optimized for something different than would a purpose-built gaming machine. All of which is to say that porting a game from the Nintendo Entertainment System to MS-DOS would require substantial changes. But with 15 million DOS PCs sold in 1990 alone, there was money on the table for anyone willing to try. And that brings us back to Mega Man. I won't mince words. Mega Man for DOS is one of the more unplayable games I've ever booted. When we discuss Kokoron in our next episode, we'll see what happened when Mega Man's creator left his child 
to form his own company and tried to bring some of the soul of his previous creation to a new endeavor. Capcom, of course, soldiered on without Akira Kitamura, and Mega Man 3 proved a success. But in a lot of ways, Mega Man for DOS feels more like what someone might have expected in that scenario. A game that loses all of the qualities that made Mega Man, Mega Man. Except for the character himself. And that brings us back to one of the questions that I'm exploring with this series. What makes a Mega Man game a Mega Man game? We're not going to answer that question today, but by examining all of the ways Mega Man for DOS tries and fails to be Mega Man, we can get a much better sense of what's important to the series and what's actually just superficial. A lot of the information that I'll be referencing in this episode comes from a wonderful YouTube video called The Story of Mega Man on DOS, published by Norman Caruso, aka The Gaming Historian. I'll link to that video in the show notes. Mega Man for DOS was developed not by a Capcom team based in Osaka, but rather by high-tech expressions in the United States. Specifically, the game was developed by one man, a programmer named Steven Rosner. Rosner was a largely self-taught developer and had cut his teeth porting arcade and console games to computers like the Commodore 64. He had even worked briefly at Capcom USA as part of an ill-fated attempt to build an internal development team focused on the Western PC market. In his free time, Rosner worked on a passion project, a Mega Man game of his own for DOS. Now, it's important to stress that Rosner's Mega Man for DOS is less an adaptation of any existing Mega Man game than it is an adaptation of the Mega Man intellectual property to the DOS platform. Capcom shared no code or resources with Rosner, leaving him to reverse engineer an approximation of their games by brute force. Rosner worked without a reliable reference point beyond his own play experience, and focused less on perfectly recreating Mega Man than he did creating a functional game with the Mega Man character in it. He replicated no traditional Mega Man enemies except for Dr. Wily, and no stages from the original games. He created three new Robot Masters from scratch, uh, Voltman, Sonic Man, and Dynaman and none of them had any of the charm or personality of their NES counterparts. They're actually shockingly ugly. Uh, he composed no music for the game, and reused no audio samples from any of Capcom's previous releases. Bowing to the constraints of contemporary keyboard controls, he chose to map Mega Man's movement to the four directional arrow buttons, fire to the spacebar, and jump to the J key. Uh, and that created a control scheme that reversed the hands which were commonly used for these actions on the NES. Uh, this game is an eyesore as well, but that's largely because of the technical constraints of the platform on which it was released. Now, say what you will about the NES, but it could do simple color palettes and multi-directional smooth scrolling exceptionally well. Uh, and almost all PCs in 1990 couldn't do that. Uh, it was a big deal in 1990 when John Carmack created Adaptive Tile Refresh, because that brought smooth scrolling to the PC. 
But in that same year, Steven Rosner was no John Carmack. And I don't say that pejoratively. There's only one John Carmack. Rosner's game then featured chunky scrolling. And that, that's common in PC games of this vintage. But compounding Rosner's problems was the general state of computer video hardware. Now again, the NES's onboard video processing had flaws, uh, and its RF and composite video output options have not aged well. Uh, but they at least had the benefit of consistency. Uh, an NES was an NES was an NES, more or less. Uh, and that meant that a developer knew what they were building for. Mega Man for DOS did not have that luxury of consistency, and instead had to offer graphical options for the CGA, EGA, and VGA video standards. Now, putting it simply, just as certain computers today are equipped with more or less powerful graphics cards, so too were certain computers of the 1980s and 1990s equipped with more or less impressive graphics adapters. CGA had a maximum resolution of 640 by 200 pixels and could display a maximum of four colors at a time. EGA upped the resolution to 640 by 350 and the available colors to 16 at one time from a palette of 64. And VGA upped the resolution again to 640 by 480 and increased the available color palette to 256 while maintaining the use of 16 colors at a time. When played in VGA mode, Mega Man for DOS looks like a distorted but recognizable version of Mega Man. But when played in CGA or EGA mode, it looks like an abstract sketch of something that might once have been a recognizable version of Mega Man made in Microsoft Paint by a right-handed person using their left hand. The colors are eye-searing. And as you play through the game, everything ultimately collapses on itself into a distorted, ugly mess. Now, all of this might have been forgivable if Rosner had nailed the physics and feel of Mega Man himself. But unfortunately, and unsurprisingly, he did not. Mega Man feels shockingly heavy in this game, and just doesn't control reliably. The reversed hand scheme probably plays a part of that. Uh, he seems to fall more quickly than in previous outings as well, and that makes it difficult to target shots when jumping to move vertically, uh, something that's very important to progressing through a game that sees fit to throw infinitely respawning flying enemies at you with reckless abandon. I can imagine a stubborn kid with a PC in 1990 committing himself to brute-forcing his way through this game, but I'm not sure I've even made it halfway through one of the game's three Robot Master stages. There's an introductory stage uh, in this game, which is a, a first in the series, that really sets the tone. You run in a straight line while a bullet sponge of a robot dog attacks you relentlessly. Uh, if you're lucky enough to kill it, you will find that it respawns immediately and infinitely. And the only way through the stage is to move forward as fast as you can, taking whatever damage you need to take. All of that said, I really don't want to be hard on Steven Rosner. Because what Rosner was doing was not making a proper Mega Man game. 
but rather making what might be considered the world's first Mega Man fan game. And he was doing it in a, a time period when there were absolutely no tools to help him. That he was doing this in his spare time as a passion project speaks to his genuine love of the character. And that he was able to convince Capcom to release it as a game speaks to the state of what was expected from a PC port at that moment in time. Rosner has retrospectively commented on the weirdness in the game by saying, I just made whatever I wanted since I loved the Mega Man NES game so much. And with no one from Capcom looking over his shoulder, who was going to stop him? Now make no mistake, Steven Rosner is a winner here. Rosner got to make a Mega Man game, and he got Capcom to release it. That's more than I've done with my life. And it's a miracle, a miracle, that he was allowed to release this game. Not because of the quality. Lord knows that Capcom's released games of dubious quality over the years but rather because it was a hacked-together version of an established property over which the owners had zero oversight. Capcom USA let him publish the game because he'd made it. It was done, and somebody was probably going to buy it. Certainly, Capcom hasn't been eager to embrace the game's legacy in the years since. It leaves it out of official release records and assorted collections. And that makes Mega Man for DOS unique, in the history of this franchise because it makes it the game that the series forgot. So what can Mega Man for DOS teach us about Mega Man in general? Well, in addition to reinforcing the primacy of pleasing character, it also teaches us that Mega Man is more than just a sprite on screen. Truly, the game feels like it has stripped away every aspect of its predecessors, except for the character himself. And that character simply isn't able to stand on its own, even if it's a reasonable approximation of the original NES design. Well, in VGA mode, anyway. I realize this somewhat contradicts what we talked about in our Mega Man 3 episode when we talked about the importance of a character as a star in a game. But playing Mega Man for DOS makes me think that when it comes to what makes a Mega Man game a Mega Man game, the character of Mega Man may not be the most important part. So without the feeling of movement, the careful enemy placement, the moment-to-moment -moment tactical thinking, the music, the ambiance... Mega Man ceases to be Mega Man and becomes just a thing, so far from its origins in the ways that matter that its parent company pretends it doesn't even exist. Capcom continues to acknowledge the existence of Mega Man X Command Mission, but it pretends that Mega Man for DOS never happened. Now, the idea of the PC port has changed radically in the decades since Mega Man came to DOS. And while Capcom's accidental attempt to bring the character to a new platform hadn't exactly been a success, it also wouldn't be the last time that the company tried to make money from its new flagship franchise in strange, unusual, and inexpensive ways.
Thanks for listening to part four of Mega Buster, our very, very long interrogation of the Mega Man franchise. Music from this episode was sourced from ocremix.org in compliance with that site's content policy. You can find credits and links to the original compositions in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or the podcatcher of your choice. If you didn't, I promise the next one will be better. If you have any feedback you'd like to provide, or if I missed something, you can reach out to clay at guilelessgamer.com. This and other social links are also in the show notes. How long will I keep fighting? How long will my pain last? Maybe only the X-Buster on my hand knows for sure.